Nuclear Films This past year has seen a new kind of nuclear proliferation, that of high-quality, engaging, well-made films on nuclear issues from our shared different perspective. They explore local, state, and international reactor disasters, successful community activism, nuclear weapons policy, downwinder issues, nuclear history, and more. It's difficult getting distribution on nuclear-themed films or know where to look to be able to watch them. But then you hear about a unique film festival, one that specializes in nuclear subject matter, not as an afterthought, but as its focus. And you learn about the incredible two-month-long tour this festival is making this spring throughout the United States. And the head of the festival tells you, During our trip at the United States, we offered our partners in different cities a selection of films, and they could select by themselves. We keep traveling from Winterock to Tucson, Austin, Texas, Asheville, North Carolina, Chicago, Spokane, Washington, Vancouver, Canada, Seattle, Portland, and the last destination will be Las Vegas. Well, when International Uranium Film Festival co-founder and general director Norbert Suchenek paints the picture of this massive, movable cinematic feast during the upcoming tour of 12 North American cities, you understand that this represents a powerful way to fight back against cultural amnesia and the nuclear industry propaganda, and it empowers us to keep fighting to find a way out of that awful, dangerous, deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Norbert Suchinek. Director General of the International Uranium Film Festival, about the upcoming massive two-month journey through North America, showing high-quality films about nuclear issues ranging from uranium mining to weapons, reactors, and radioactive waste, and everything in between. If you're anywhere near any of the locations we mentioned, both the films and the community that coalesces around them for the festival are experiences you will not want to miss. And we'll also hear the latest on the decommissioned but not danger-free goings-on at the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant in Massachusetts. We'll focus on the latest shenanigans by oft-sued and frequently reviled decommissioning company Holtec on how they are trying to make radioactive wastewater vanish, but not really. Diane Turco of Cape Downwinders tells us what they're up to this time and what's being done to stop them from further contaminating people and the environment. We'll also have nuclear news from around the world, 
Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, The Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story with Linda Pence Gunter, and more honest nuclear information than will get anywhere near the coverage of the Super Bowl unless Taylor Swift says something about it. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 30th, 2024, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Here in the U.S., Republican Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri wants the Motion Picture Academy to include the story of those who have suffered as a result of America's nuclear testing in its celebration of Oppenheimer. The letter is Hawley's latest attempt to gain national attention for victims of radiation exposure from the Manhattan Project's development during the 1940s through nuclear bomb tests and uranium mining. We will have a link up to Hawley's full letter, which is quite impressive, and some articles on his stance on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 658. In Arizona, a uranium mine located just seven miles south of the Grand Canyon National Park has begun operations, one of the first to open in the U.S. in eight years. The opening of the Pinion Plain Mine, formerly known as the Canyon Mine, has faced decades of fierce opposition from the Havasupai tribe, who fear that its operations could contaminate the tribe's sole source of drinking water and damage important cultural sites. Uranium mining in the region had ceased for years amid a federal ban on new mining claims around the Grand Canyon. Permitted mines unaffected by the ban sat dormant due to low uranium prices. But an agreement at the COP28 Conference on Climate Change to triple nuclear energy production as a means to, quote-unquote, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, their claim, not the truth, has boosted the demand for uranium. Energy Fuels Incorporated, the owner-operator of Pinion Mine, cited rising uranium prices as well as increased buying interest from U.S. nuclear utilities, U.S. and global government policies supporting nuclear energy, and the need to reduce U.S. reliance on Russian and Russian-controlled uranium and nuclear fuel, among their reasons to ramp up production. And now here's... Nuclear Hot Seat Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out week. Safety first. That's what Boeing wants you to keep uppermost in your mind as you visit their Santa Susana Field Lab site in Simi Valley, California, just 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles. They have a slick little brochure that warns you to use your cell phones only when standing still. Use crosswalks and walkways, and look both ways when crossing streets. Use handrails on stairways, and always wear appropriate footwear. Not once in this brochure is the word radiation used, nor the term chemical contamination, both frontline features of the site formerly known as Rocketdyne. This is where a nuclear meltdown occurred in 1959, in an experimental reactor that had no containment vessel around it. So the radiation was vented directly into the atmosphere, with no warnings to the local population. There are still hot radiation burn pits. It's still contaminated. And during the massive Woolsey fire in 2018, which started on this Santa Susana Field Lab property, radioactive particles were re-released and found almost 10 miles away. But hey, y'all wanna visit? Just watch where you're going, don't wear flip-flops, and behave yourself. If you inhale anything contaminated with radioactivity, 
We know nothing about that. It will probably be years until something health-related develops, and by then, we will have all kinds of plausible deniability so you won't have a case. And that's why Boeing and the radioactive blind spot promoted by this safety brochure that ignores the biggest threat to safety, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, Num Nuts of the Week. You can learn all about this site and what has happened to the people who live in that community in the award-winning documentary, In the Dark of the Valley. It's currently streaming on Peacock, and we will have a link to a trailer for it up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 658. Over to Japan, where TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, operator of the tsunami-hit nuclear plant in Fukushima and site of a triple nuclear meltdown, has announced a delay of several more months before launching a test to remove melted nuclear fuel debris from inside one of the reactors. The debris cleanup initially was supposed to be started by 2021, but it has been plagued with delays, and as of now has been pushed back until at least October. The Japanese government and TEPCO initially committed to start removing the melted fuel from inside one of the three damaged reactors within 10 years of the start of the disaster. Right now we're at 13 years and counting, and it hasn't started yet. About 880 tons of highly radioactive melted nuclear fuel remains inside the three damaged reactors. The third anniversary of the passage of the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons was marked in a number of ways. An international group of bishops is calling for universal, verifiable nuclear disarmament. The prelates of Santa Fe, New Mexico and Seattle, Washington, as well as those of the Japanese Archdiocese of Nagasaki and the Diocese of Hiroshima, issued the letter on Monday, January 22nd, which marked the treaty's anniversary. It has been signed by 93 countries and ratified by 70, though no nuclear weapons powers or their allies have yet signed on to it. The prelates wrote that the treaty is limited to those states that have formally ratified it, but its moral power does not recognize boundaries between nations nor lines on a map. The moral power of this treaty is global and universal. In Germany, Nuclear attack threats emanate from the Luftwaffe's Buchel Air Force Base in the form of 15 U.S. nuclear bombs stored and kept ready for Germany's tornado jet fighter pilots to drop on Russia. This unlawful nuclear sharing, the Non-Proliferation Treaty prohibits such transfers, has been the focus of hundreds of protest actions over the years. Most recently, U.S. Air Force veteran Dennis Duval, formerly of Prescott, Arizona, but now living in Germany, honored the treaty by defending himself in a political trial. Having named an entrance road to the nuclear weapons base a crime scene with a bit of spray paint, he committed no exaggeration or misdemeanor, considering the United Nations Charter, the Nuremberg Judgment, and the Geneva Conventions. Nevertheless, Duval was charged with damage to property, but will turn the tables in district court in Cochem, Germany, reminding the court that earlier judges in Germany, in the Third Reich, learned the hard way by not refusing to cooperate with state crimes. And look where that went. But that hasn't stopped the U.S., which is planning to station nuclear weapons in the U.K. for the first time in 15 years. Warheads three times as strong as the Hiroshima bomb would be located at RAF Lakenheath in Suffolk, which is 81 miles or 130 kilometers away from London. 
The U.S. previously placed nuclear missiles at Lakenheath, but removed them in 2008 after the Cold War threat from Moscow receded. Pentagon documents reveal procurement contracts for a new facility at the airbase, though a U.K. Ministry of Defense spokesperson said it remains a long-standing U.K. and NATO policy to neither confirm nor deny the presence of nuclear weapons at a given location. Salafield, the U.K.'s nuclear reprocessing, waste treatment, and storage facility in Cumbria, 300 miles from London, received its first box of nuclear waste. For me, you shouldn't have. No, really, you shouldn't have. The box encapsulation plant product store is an above-ground vault they say will safely store intermediate-level waste for a century. Each of these boxes contains five ton of radioactive waste, and the facility can house over 6,600 of these boxes. What a gift to future generations. Now here's Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, asking the question, are we tired yet of rich elite men telling us the world wants nuclear energy? Remember all those doomsayers from the pro-nuclear mythology unit who cast Germany's energy vendor, or green energy revolution, as a catastrophic failure? They claimed that the country's choice to close all its nuclear power plants would guarantee an increase in fossil fuel use and especially coal. Germany vehemently denied those false predictions since they clearly knew that the country's renewables were more than able to replace nuclear and fossil fuels, and so it has come to pass. Germany's use of lignite, or brown coal, dropped to its lowest level in 60 years in 2023. Even more dramatically, its hard coal use is at the lowest level since 1955. Renewables contributed a record share of more than half of the country's power consumption in 2023, at the same time the last three reactors closed. The 2022 uptick of coal production in Germany was entirely driven by high gas prices in the energy crisis and a shortfall of French nuclear power production. Yes, France. Its nuclear sector was so unreliable, half of their reactors were closed on two occasions in 2022, it had to import electricity to keep the lights on and the heat running. Meanwhile, back on US soil, we learn that the struggling Vogel 3 and 4 new reactor project in Georgia, already $20 billion over budget and years late, is set once again to further gouge ratepayers for the mistakes and failures of Georgia power. But none of these realities deter the pro-nuclear lobby, now led most shamefully by the International Atomic Energy Agency itself. Even as its chief, Rafael Grossi, wrings his hands over the immense dangers posed by Ukraine's 15 reactors embroiled in a war, he and his agency are planning what it brags is the first ever nuclear energy summit to be held in late March in Brussels. The IAEA has now become possibly the world's most aggressive marketer of nuclear power and is still crowing about what it sees as a triumph at COP28, a veritable nuclear coup d'etat. In reality, this encompassed a miserable 24 countries signing on to an absurd fantasy propaganda statement that the world can and must triple global nuclear capacity by 2025. This was followed by an outrageously presumptuous declaration by former U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz in a Boston Globe op-ed that, quote, the world wants to triple nuclear energy. 
Are we tired yet of absurdly rich, mostly white men pronouncing what the world wants from the comfort of their ivory towers? We are one such elitist down now with the retirement of 80-year-old multimillionaire John Kerry as U.S. climate envoy. As of January 2024, his net worth was $250 million, but that's after divesting himself from his shares in fossil fuel, nuclear power, and nuclear weapons companies. And then comes Rishi Sunak, another multimillionaire and prime minister of the UK, who, despite all the evidence of cost, rising sea levels, and agonizingly slow timelines, announced on January 11th Britain's plan for its, quote, biggest expansion of nuclear power for 70 years to create jobs, reduce bills, and strengthen Britain's energy security. Nuclear power, of course, can achieve none of these. The electricity, even of the current new nuclear reactors nearing completion at Hinkley Point in the UK, will be almost triple the price Britons are currently paying. Promised new jobs will evaporate along with the new reactor plans. To achieve so-called energy security and get off its reliance on imported Russian nuclear fuel, Sunak's government also announced it would invest $381 million to produce the fuel domestically. This is all a colossal betrayal of working people and their needs, with money squandered on illusory, expensive and irrelevant nuclear projects whose only purpose is to sustain the UK's nuclear arsenal, one that could destroy the world many times over. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter from Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. Now here's the first of this week's two featured interviews. The thing about nuclear issues is that they never go away. It seems that every time a concession gets made to public health and safety, and action promised to clean up a specific reactor site or deal with the radioactive waste issue, somehow, over time, it gets twisted around and suddenly the hard-fought process seems to vanish because of manipulations by the nuclear industry, which hates to be held accountable. One recent example of this is the ongoing manipulation by Holtec International, the company tasked with cleaning up the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station on Cape Cod Bay in Massachusetts. To bring us up to date on the struggles there over radioactive water, here is Diane Turco. She is director of Cape Downwinders, a grassroots activist organization with the goal to protect our communities and environment from the dangers present at the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station and Nuclear Waste Dump in Plymouth, Massachusetts. I spoke with Diane Turco just this morning on January 30th, 2024. Diane Turco, thanks for joining me on such short notice here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you for having me. What is the situation with the radioactive water that is being held at the Pilgrim Nuclear Facility on Cape Cod in Massachusetts? Holtec purchased Pilgrim in 2019. And when they purchased Pilgrim, they signed a settlement agreement with the Attorney General's office that holds them to abide by all state laws and regulations, environmental, health, all of them. Holtec signed that deal. Well, then Holtec decided they had 1.1 million gallons of radioactive and chemically contaminated water, that the easiest way to get rid of it was to dump it in Cape Cod Bay. However, Cape Cod Bay is a protected ocean sanctuary, and we have laws in our state, and one of them is the Ocean Sanctuaries Act, and that prohibits the discharge. So our Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection has tentatively denied Holtec the dump. <laughs> 
Holtec has said if they come to a final decision to deny the permit, they will take the state to court. And they also, um, in this uh, settlement agreement, they agreed that there was no preemption, no federal preemption. What does and that mean? Yep, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission does not have the final say in what happens here. The state does. Holtec signed that agreement. But now they're saying that's not the case and that the NRC is in charge, and it's not the case. So Holtec continues to obfuscate the truth. They act like they're above the law, and they're planning to still dump the water. However, right now they are not. So once this tentative decision came about, Holtec put in heaters in the reactor cavity. The radioactive contaminated water that will not be in our bay is now being heated and out a vent at the reactor site. Is it coming out as steam? Is it visible? Are these clouds coming out from it? It's radioactive vapor and chemically contaminated vapor, and it's just going out into the community. But Holtec, believe this, Holtec said they are heating the water in the building for worker comfort, to raise the ambient temperature for worker comfort. Well, I received a whistleblower letter in August from, it looked like an insider who said, Holtec was heating this water to discharge it, untreated, unfiltered, and unmonitored out the vent. Holtec denies this, but again, the only time Holtec is tr transparent is when they misrepresent the truth and they have a legacy of lying. What is the danger or the health impact that comes from release of water vapor as opposed to dumping physical water so that it goes into the air as opposed to into the ocean, the bay? It will still be going into the bay as it condenses back down into water. We have the Massachusetts Medical Society and Harvard School of Public Health working on this health issue. Dr. Petros Koutrakis is with the Harvard School of Public Health, and they are initiating a study to look at the um, health impacts of the situation in Plymouth. They're going to be drawing blood samples from the citizens in Plymouth and taking a look at what's going on. Also, uh, Dr. Britta Lundberg with the Greater Boston Physicians for Social Responsibility presented a health program to the Plymouth Board of Health and spoke about the dangers of radionuclides in our environment, particularly for infants, children, and girls, that it's not one dose, but it's multiple exposures over time, and that what is happening at Plymouth should stop now. So they've already been evaporating this radioactive water that has other contaminants in it already. When did that start? As soon as the um, EPA threatened Holtec with jail time if they dumped in the bay in December of 2022, that February they put in the heaters, 2023. So they started heating the water in the reactor cavity, and then I got the whistleblower letter. And so didn't our Department of Public Health got this whistleblower letter that said they are heating this water to discharge it. Holtec said, oh, no, we're doing this so that our workers are in a comfortable, warm environment and we're drying some equipment with irradiated vapor. You know, it's just so, so clearly a lie. And Holtec is getting away with it. It's like they're trying to make it sound like a spa to make their workers more comfortable. It's like, ooh, just relax in this radioactive steam and water. Exactly. And the whistleblower said they, would they raised the concern about public health and worker safety. 
because the tritium level, and even the NRC agreed that the tritium level would be elevated from evaporation. And just for clarity, tritium is a radioactive element that cannot be filtered out of water. And that's right. the problem both that you are facing. Also, that's the problem with the water that's being released in Japan from Fukushima, that right. there's tritium in it and we can't get rid of it. There's no way. Right. And as we understand, the tritium in the air is 300 times the dose that it would be if it was released on the surface water. But that's not accounting for organically bound tritium, but surface water release. So this is very, very serious. It's very dangerous. So Holtec turned off the heaters in June. Why would they have to heat the building April and May and June in Plymouth? It's warm here. They turn the heaters back on just before November, and now it's in the spent fuel pool with all that garbage water. What is being done about it? I know that you certainly don't sit still on this, and neither do others who are in your group and the other activists and NGOs in the Boston area. Right. What's going on now? We immediately asked the government to have an independent investigation of the whistleblower allegations. Number one, investigate what this whistleblower said. And then secondly, we're asking our governor to call for stopping the evaporation. Um, the Department of Environmental Protection sent a letter to Holtec saying, if you're evaporating to discharge the water, please let us know so that we could have a meeting to talk about perhaps you may be needing a permit under our air quality regulations. Can you believe it? So Holtec, oh, no, no, no. It's for our worker comfort. We want them to, you know, you know, feel like you're down in the Bahamas. So the state, I think, is negligent. In the settlement agreement, it said that they could investigate the settlement agreement says that nothing in this agreement shall release any person from the obligation to investigate and remediate new, undiscovered, or undisclosed releases of radiological contamination. They have an obligation to do that. This is new water. That's what they found, the DEP found when they looked at the permit for the dumping in the bay. This isn't a nuclear reactor. It's a decommissioning site. It's different. And the water is different. So this is a new source of water. So Holtec can't say, you know, we've been doing dumping this water forever. No, this is a whole new source. And the state recognized that. But for some reason, this um, evaporation is, is really under the wire. Our government isn't stopping it. The state of Massachusetts has not taken any steps to stop the evaporation as of today. And it will almost be a year. What can be done to raise the temperature, so to speak, on those officials and agencies? that are supposed to be doing the protective work, but are not. We've sent letters. People are starting to get really riled up about this because they did stop the heaters in June. So I think everybody stepped back and said, well, they're not heating anymore. Well, then they restarted them in just before Thanksgiving. So that started the public to say, wait a minute, this can't be. So people are writing letters, going to meetings. At the Nuclear Decommissioning Citizens Advisory Panel meeting last night, the Department of Environmental Protection for the state is asking Holtec for an analysis of the water that's going up out the vent. So that's a move in the right direction. We still think they should call for no heating, then investigate. How has the media been handling this? Have you gotten any attention on it or are they sitting back and waiting? The media's been good. The media's been good on this issue. They're really stepping up lately, too. One thing, though, our elected officials haven't been strong in coming out to say no evaporation of the contaminated and wastewater. So we're working on that. 
If there's anything we can do to help you here at Nuclear Hot Seat, please get us the information. Send us links to the appropriate material, and I will post it on the website under this episode, number 658. For now, Diane Turco, thanks for stepping up on such short notice and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Diane Turco. She is director of Cape Downwinders and a ferocious veteran fighter for a responsible handling of the radioactive waste from the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. We'll have a link to Cape Downwinders on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 658. We'll have this week's second featured interview in just a moment. But first, as you'll hear in our next interview... The International Uranium Film Festival is coming to the U.S. and Canada for two months of screenings in 12 different cities. I've covered the festival for many years, first reading press releases they sent out, then attending in Quebec in 2015, Hollywood 2016, Window Rock on Navajo Nation in 2018, and then last year, 2023, in Brazil. Each time, the trip and my involvement yielded a nuclear hot seat special, that focused not just on the films, but on the local issues, activists, groups, audience members' concerns, and what it means to have the film festival there. Each of these episodes became lasting records of pivotal moments in local, state, and national nuclear issues. For this year's festival, it's important that I be at the opening in Window Rock, Navajo Nation on March 7 and 8, and separately at the closing in Las Vegas, on April 30th and May 1st. Each location will provide a chance for me to get up close and personal with local issues and activists and provide you, the listeners, with a you-are-there soundscape of information and experience. But in order to do so, I need to raise the funds to cover my travel expenses, which are over and above the show's monthly operating costs. So I'm reaching out to you for your help. As you'll hear from the interview, there will be a lot to report on, and the only way you will find out is through Nuclear Hot Seat. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means that your donations are tax-deductible. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. Or, if you have Zelle, you can send money directly to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Don't wait. Donate right now. Whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's second featured interview. The International Uranium Film Festival presented its first program in May of 2011, only two months after the Fukushima disaster began and one month before Nuclear Hot Seat's first program. Since then, the venue has grown into the largest, and to date only, film festival in the world that focuses exclusively on nuclear-related subject matter. Past years have seen it present films in Rio, Berlin, India, Canada, Norway, and the United States, including Hollywood. For 2024, the festival will take on a two-month marathon tour of 12 cities in the U.S. and Canada, showing films curated for each location's needs and issues. Full Disclosure I have worked with the IUFF, as we sometimes refer to it, for 12 years in a range of capacities, from simply reading press releases on the show, to being a judge of the films, to traveling to Brazil last year to cover the festival in person. That's where they presented me with a Lifetime Achievement Award, 
And now I serve as the festival's ambassador to the United States, so I am involved with them. I promote and support them because I think that this festival is an important tool in presenting honest information about international nuclear issues that represent your community and out to the rest of the world. To learn more about the 2024 International Uranium Film Festival, I talked with its Rio de Janeiro-based co-founder and general director, Norbert Suchinek, on January 26, 2024. Norbert Suchinek, thank you so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, too, for inviting me. Well, that's a done deal, considering how involved the two of us have been with each other over the International Uranium Film Festival. Let's give people a little bit of background on the festival. It has a history of presenting films about nuclear in venues literally all over the world. Now, most film festivals are in a single location and they show a bunch of films. How did this traveling format get started? Well, in fact, it already gets started at the first year of the Radium Film Festival when we started in Rio de Janeiro. And then we traveled with our guests, international guests, to Sao Paulo, to have the festival in Sao Paulo. And then we traveled to Salvador, Recife, and to other cities in Brazil. And in the same year, we received invitations to bring the festival to Berlin, to Portugal, and other parts of the world. So in fact, it was already in the first year and traveling film festival. Where are some of the places that you have gone? The most important place was India 2013 with just a funding of $10,000, only $10,000. We made the film festival in 10 cities in India and nearly every city two different venues. And we traveled, well, really, you, you, you must say from New Delhi to Himalaya and then to the southern part. And, and we knew all part of India except the rich, beautiful places. <laughs> so because we had to use low-cost hotels, low-cost flyers, but uh, we met amazing people from New Delhi, from, from Mumbai, and uh, we made lots of friends over there. Of course, uh, we made the festival in Berlin. And in fact, uh, Germany is our second home of the festival. It's not only because that I'm German, but it's because we have big friends over there and because in the first years, the Ministry of Environment of Germany financed our festival in Berlin. The Uranium Film Festival is based in Rio. That's where you and co-founder Marcia Gomez de Oliveira make your home. Now you are facing an enormous schedule this year with a major tour of North America, the U.S. and Canada. It's about to start. How did this North American tour come about? Well, we have been already three times in the United States. We have been Los Angeles, you know, Olivia, you have been part of it. It was amazing, great event. And we have been two times in Winter Rock before, and we have been one time in New York in winter time. So the United States is not new for us. But the idea to return again to the United States 
came with a discussion or with the meeting of Lech Majewski. He is the guy who made the film Valley of the Gods. I'm not familiar with that one. What is the topic of it? Lech Majewski is the director of the movie Valley of the Gods. And the movie is filmed on the Navajo territory. It's about uranium mining. It's a strange, crazy movie with lots of movie stars from Hollywood. And so Lech Majewski received our award in Rio de Janeiro. And he said, oh, his great wish is to bring his film to Wind Rock. And I said, oh, no problem. I know the people of Wind Rock. Let's do it. And so when we could organize it to Windor Rock, then we said, well, there are other cities in the United States. Maybe if we are in Windor Rock, we can go to other places. And we asked around. And from one moment to another, we have now 12 cities where we have to bring the festival in the United States. So it's not only Windor Rock. It's uh, Windor Rock, Tucson, Asheville, Northern Carolina, it's Seattle, it's Portland in Oregon. And I think it's happened because it had to happen. I remember when you put out the map of where you were planning to go and put out a call for other cities, other organizations that wanted to book you. And it seemed like there was this tremendous upswell of interest in the festival and in doing local bookings. How did people find you? How did they come to you? What kind of arrangements have you had to make to make this happen? They found us just because we made an announcement by press release and by friends in Facebook and Twitter. And just they just knew us. So like we said we are going to Window Rock. And one hour later, Tucson said, oh, we want to be on the list. It was really happening. And now it's, a, it's really it's a marathon tour. It's, it's big, it's huge. And we could have done it even more, but our time is limited. We have only a time of two months. Now, because we too, Marcia and I, Marcia, the co-director and me, we too have jobs. It's not the festival that's financing us. We are financing the festival until now. Because, well, of course, maybe in the future when we are retired, maybe the festival give us some financial support. But at the moment, she is a teacher. I am a correspondent. And the festival is just a very nice project to meet very good people, very nice people and big friends like Liva and all the others. Where and when will the festival be starting? It will start in Windor Rock. And when will that be? March 7. And we expect very wonderful guests like Lech Majewski from Poland. And we will have uh, an indigenous Hollywood star, Joseph Running Fox. He made Geronimo and other big films. And he will show up too. And we expect maybe, if we are lucky, John Malkovich. So it's sounding like the festival is building not only within an activist community or those who are attuned to nuclear issues, but also in the larger film world. 
where it is gaining a level of prominence and people are gaining an awareness of it. Do you find that to be the fact? Yes, yes, of course. And that's the idea that we had when we created the festival, because in 2008, when I saw the first time good films on nuclear issues, they were screened only on, I would say, dark sides without big public. And I said, oh, we have to bring it to the big media. There's no way out, you know. And so the idea to create the Rainbow Film Festival is uh, to involve the, the whole public and to involve Hollywood and, and Hollywood stars. That was the really the idea. And, uh, and we are getting closer and co closer to it. I know that I was involved with helping to bring the festival to Hollywood back a number of years ago, and we did have a panel discussion there. We were assisted by Kat Kramer, who's the daughter of director Stanley Kramer, who made On the Beach. We had a panel discussion that included actors Ed Asner, Isai Morales, Lou Gossett Jr., and there were a lot of people who were involved with Hollywood who did show up and did pay attention to it there. Is there any plan to bring the festival back to Hollywood this year? That's a very big wish. We would love to bring it to Hollywood. It needs funding. You know? We have lots of people in Hollywood waiting for us to come in. We have the Raleigh Studios waiting for us to make the festival over there, but still needs a bit of funding. It's not much money. Ten thousand bucks. We made the first festival in 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 Hollywood with ten thousand bucks, and we can do it again with ten thousand bucks. Any festival needs funding. Okay, there's no way out. But I can say what we do with ten thousand bucks, other festivals cannot do with one million bucks. That is for certain because I've seen the results. Everything is done on a budget, on a very tight budget. At the same time. The goodwill you generate, the support you generate, and the level of work that the two of you and your supporters put in puts the festival over the top so that it looks like much more than the amount of money that was put up for it. So let's move on to the films. How do you determine which films are going to be shown in the festival? In Rio, we select the films. We have a staff of people including scientists to select the films to be screened in Rio de Janeiro and also to be selected as the best films. And we have already selected the best films of this year. And during our trip at the United States, we offered our partners in different cities a selection of films and they could select by themselves with our help. So there is a curated list of films that was presented to each location that would be most applicable to their local issues so that they could build on top of them. What are some of the films that are going to be shown? We are going to show, listen, Nuked, a new film from Canada. It's amazing. Everybody has to see it. It's Nuked by producer and writer and director Andrew Niska. Another very good film is Silent Fallout. It's a film by a Japanese director about all the risks of uh, atomic bomb tests around the world. 
we have a very good film, a new film about Fukushima that we selected, and it's called The Fukushima Disaster. It's by a French director, Philippe Carillo. We've had him on the show talking about his film, and oh, okay. I've seen it. It's quite, it, it's quite excellent. I'll link to it when we have this interview up. And we have, interesting too, a new film about the use of depleted uranium weapons, which is also very important and very rare published issue. And the film is called Toxic NATO by a German director, Moritz Enders. It's looking to the bad side of the depleted uranium use of the NATO. And we have a wonderful new short film. Well, really, it, it will be one of the best films of the festival, best short films. It's from India. Jadagoda, The Land of Magic. It's a young film director, and it's a fiction film about what happened to the indigenous peoples around the uranium mine in India. Do you find that any of the films that come to you have any kind of a humorous aspect to it or the lighter side of nukes? Because all of these are really heavy topics. And I'm wondering if there are others there that kind of leaven our approach to nuclear. This year, I can't see any comedy about nuclear. We had some years with good comedy films. We have a nice little film. It's called Honeymoon in Oak Ridge. It tells the story. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's, a, it's a simple, nice film telling the story how the Manhattan Project was installed in Oak Ridge and how all the people, all the women like to come to Oak Ridge to Oak Ridge to, to live there and to build the bomb. It's, it's funny. Good money and funny. So it's a, well, you can see it's a comedy, but no, it's it. I understand that there is now a new award that's being given for a young filmmaker. What is that award? Where did it come from? And what constitutes young? That's a good question. Who is young? <laughs> Here in the United States, we like to say that any anti-nuclear activist who's under 60 is a young activist. In fact, this year I have to learn because we had to deal with uh, more than 20 organizations in the United States this year to make the festival in 13 cities. And 99% of the people are over 60. A woman of 40 is very young. Well, I'm 60 and I feel young. So it's, or what is a young filmmaker? That's a good question. The definition of a young filmmaker, we didn't make it at the moment. But for me, it's a person who started filmmaking. In other words, they're young in their filmmaking career. Exactly. That is the definition of a young filmmaker. Because you can start filmmaking with 12 years, with 6 years old, or with 66. And if a film is your first film, so I, in that sense, you're a young filmmaker. And what is this award and where did it come from? Samuel Lawrence Foundation from Bart Siegler. It's, it was really a great thing meeting him. He's supporting our festival in Chicago 
And from one second to another, he said, oh, I'm going to finance an award for the best young filmmakers. And we said, okay, wonderful. So that will be forthcoming as of the presentation in Chicago, or you're saving that for real? It's still a secret because we still do not exactly know who is going to be the winner this year. Because we are in the process of selecting all the films and questioning all the judges. We have to make the decision in February, and then I can tell you more about it. When is the Rio Festival taking place? Because that's what I refer to as the mothership. It's a multi-day series of presentations. You go for the better part of a week, if not longer than a week, and there are a lot of films shown. I was privileged to be able to be there in 2023 to be part of this in Rio. And it was stunningly impressive and impactful, and especially on the young people who went there. You have it in Rio every year. When is it going to be? It will start the 25th of May. And we will have one week full festival until the 1st of June with screenings every day. We already expect filmmakers coming from United States, from Germany, and maybe from India to receive the awards. That's fabulous. It was very exciting to be able to be there last year. So my question to you is, how long is this trip going to be going here in the United States? You're starting out March 7th and 8th in Window Rock, and then you keep traveling. How long are you going to be here? We keep traveling from Winter Rock to Tucson to Austin, Texas, and to Asheville, North Carolina, and then we are going slowly north to Chicago, and then we're going west, Spokane, Washington, and we are going to Vancouver, Canada, back Seattle, Portland, and the last destination will be Las Vegas. And this will be the last two days of the official festival, April 30 and May the 1st. That's quite a schedule you have in front of you to pace yourself through. Now, is it still possible for filmmakers to submit films for consideration for this year? Or are you into looking at this point at the 2025 festival for any new submissions that you get? Uh, for, for this year, it's, uh, it's already closed. This year, no chance. Maybe there's a little window open because we got the invitation just a few weeks ago to bring the festival this year also to Wales in the United Kingdom because they have problems with the new reactors building by the United Kingdom. And they want to have the festival this year as soon as possible. And so we may have it in June. And for this festival, maybe there's a window open for other new films. But it's not really sure at the moment. It's still a work in progress. It was planned to make the festival in Wales and Scotland in 2025. But because of the pressure of the United Kingdom government, they want to have it this year already. So the festival 
does play directly into whatever the local political and health issues are that an individual community is experiencing. And you can say that. For filmmakers who are wanting to participate in the festival, be it in 2025 or whenever their films are completed, what do they need to do to submit? We have our festival uh, registered at the platform Film Freeway. So just go over there and then send the films through it. That's the best way. The other way is just Uranium Film Festival, Google it, and you have our website and there's all the contact information. When are submissions open or is this an ongoing process? It's an ongoing process. We have an official opening and official closing for Rio de Janeiro. But, you know, every year we have some where else festivals. Next year, for example, we have for sure the festival again in Berlin. This year we cannot do it because we do it in the United States. But next year we will have it, of course, in Berlin again. And then there will be a different closing time. So it's 24-7. You can send your films 24-7 to our festival. We'll have a link up to that on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 658. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to share with the listeners? I love you all. (laughs) And we love you for what you're doing because it is truly an overwhelming labor of love from you and Marcia to put this together. It is an astonishing burden of organization and my hat's off to you for the elegance and the efficiency with which you are able to bring it off. People don't understand what this takes. I just want to say, please come to the festival. Please watch the films. Be patient with us because we are working with lots of volunteers. It's not always 100%, but we do what we can and we do it with our heart. Spoken like an activist or a campaigner who works against nuclear on any level. And yours is one of the few international platforms that we do have for sharing our information, which is one of the things that makes it so incredibly valuable. I know we will be talking in the future about this. My hope is to be able to have the financing to be able to visit the festival in Window Rock and also, if possible, in Las Vegas. Those are relatively close to me. Hopefully, I will be seeing you and Marcia in person very soon. I hope so, too, because our plans are going down from Portland, going down to the California coast to visit Los Angeles, and, of course, do visit you, Olivia, and then pick you up to drive up to Las Vegas. You may return by plane, so. We will discuss further, all of which is extremely exciting. For now, Norbert Suchinek and Marcia Gomez de Oviedo, who's been lurking in the background for this, but letting you do the talking. I want to thank you for the work you do in putting together this astonishing film festival and also for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you too, Livy. And thank you for all you do for the festival. It's, uh, it's an amazing job, what you're doing. Norbert Suchinek 
co-founder and general director of the International Uranium Film Festival. The festival kicks off on March 7 in Window Rock, Navajo Nation, which is in Arizona. We will have a link up to their full schedule on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, episode number 658. We'll also have a link there for filmmakers who wish to submit their films for consideration for the 2025 festival, which will include Berlin and Rio. My intention is to attend two of the sites here in the United States, the opening at Window Rock in Navajo Nation and the closing in Las Vegas. And if you can help get me there, please do. To donate, go to NuclearHotSeat.com and know that I appreciate anything you can do to help. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. The activist shout-out segment is both to acknowledge people who have done something extraordinary and also to let people know how they can get involved in something so they too can be extraordinary. So if you have an event coming up, a festival, a protest, attendance wanted at a government meeting, any kind of response at all, get that information to me. But know that I need it at least three weeks ahead of the date so I have a fighting chance of getting the information up and out while people can still make plans to be involved. I usually get them way too late to be able to use them on the show. So remember, three-week lead time, send it to info at nuclearhotseat.com, and if you have any big wins, let us know that too. We love to be able to brag about you. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 30th, 2024. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. Sign up on your favorite podcast channel, or what's better for me is if you go to NuclearHotSeat.com, go to the yellow box, you really can't miss it, put in your first name and email address, and every week you'll get one email with the link and a short description to that show's content. That way you need never miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help and appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2024, Libby Halevi, Nuclear Hot Seat, and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you, we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with a date that it's over, because once it starts, it is never over. There you have it. You've just had your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.